if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? We will begin in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, verses 1 through 4. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Now let us turn to our text as we continue our study in 1 Thessalonians. We'll be reading chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempts to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. May we receive it as such. Be to God. Andy, thank you very much, brother. Thanks for you and Krista, whose name you saw. She's traveling this morning, so next time we'll, we'll have both of you. We give thanks for you. Well, I had a sad discussion this week with a friend as uh, she related to me that there was a symposium of uh, some mutual friends in Boston, and they were evaluating this matter of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, but not as a result of foreign conflict or a result of, say, domestic abuse, but rather PTSD as a result of wounds suffered in the local church. That it seems like really every week that we'll read some kind of news platform, and there's another uh, pastor who has uh, established a platform for himself, and down he's come, and in so doing really discredits our fellowship and the faith that we profess. 
It's a very sad reality that we have upon us, and quite frankly, it's a, it's a rather old uh, problem. I think, um, you know, say something like uh, Pride and Prejudice, if you know how the clergyman's depicted in Jane Austen's novel, right? He's a little bit sleazy, re- relying on inherited wealth, or uh, maybe another novel, novel, Elmer Gantry, about 100 years old, um, Sinclair Lewis, that... Uh, The title character is a very sensual clergyman with an insatiable appetite and just does all kinds of destruction. And while we see it in literature, we also know that 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 has come home in a very real way. That it would seem that ministry can become a very... uh, a very helpful arena when one wants to elevate themselves and to cause um, a lot of damage. Not that that's the intention, but we see how that can happen. And here today, that we want to drill down on how to prevent this kind of thing. Now, I know what you're thinking, you know, both readings, both the Jeremiah reading about false shepherds and Paul uh, talking about his ministry among the Thessalonians. I think the objection is, well, that's great for, you know, full-time pastors, the, the six of you at Providence who are here, but what about us? And I'd push back against that and say, well, actually, if you're a Christian, then you're in ministry. That we've hit this theme over and over again, right? The universal priesthood. If you say Jesus is king, then it's up to all of us through our interactions, both with one another and then out in the world, that we're representatives, that we are ambassadors of the Lord Jesus. And so for each one of us, I think Paul uh, presents here some characteristics of real ministry. Uh, You'll notice the title that I've taken it from Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary uh, to Asia. God's work done God's way. There was a third part, what he said. God's work done God's way never lacks for God's supply. But I think today what we want to talk about is what is God's work and how is it done God's way? Instead of man's work done man's way, which creates a lot of damage. So that's where we find ourselves. And what is the context then of 1 Thessalonians? You'll remember we've been in it now uh, three weeks Paul is about to go back into Asia and gets the vision of the Macedonian man and says, come to Europe. And Paul turns to the West and the gospel of Jesus Christ comes into Europe. And he starts to make his way down uh, through Philippi and then into Thessalonica. And he preaches, it would seem, uh, the text is ambiguous, but three consecutive Sabbaths. So he's not there that long. I don't know, a month, you know, three weeks, a month, something like that. He's preaching Christ crucified. God's acted in Jesus to save sinners, turn to him. And then the whole thing blows up uh, because uh, people are siding with Paul and Paul is rushed out of town and on his way down to Corinth and Athens. And so now as he would write back, you can tell in our passage how he's um, you know, refuting some claims. Uh, there's a lot of times in Paul's letters you, f- you feel like you're getting one side of the phone conversation, you know? Um, oh, oh, the garden. Oh, dear. Oh, those rabbits. Did, did the tomatoes make it? That kind of thing. So you get a be- uh, bits and pieces of what's happening, but not the full picture. But it's easy to see here the charges that his antagonists in Thessalonica are leveling against him. Oh, that Paul. Comes into town with this crazy message, comes into our peaceful synagogue, and then he hits the road. You guys gave him money. You know, this guy is a con man. And Paul's writing back. He says, you know, you know that's not what happened. But what happened, what we talked about last week, was the power of God breaking in on these Thessalonians and doing a work in their life. So in our text, we'll look at four aspects of faithful Christian ministry, four aspects of God's work done God's way. There are probably more here, but I think uh, four will get us started, and then you'll spend time on this this week. So I think point number one comes through here. 
Paul says real ministry, his ministry, was aiming to please God. Have a look at verse 4. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And we're not in the people-pleasing business in ministry, but rather we're in the God-pleasing business, like the young Jesus in the temple. Don't you know I'm about my father's business? Every Christian ought to be about our father's business. Or again, in verse 6, he kind of doubles down. Nor did we seek glory from people. Uh, to have notoriety, to be recognized by those to whom you're ministering. That there's these claims being leveled. Paul was in it for himself. He was never really that concerned about God. And Paul says, no, it must always be about God. Moreover, I think a couple things here. Maybe you glossed over this a number of times, and as I have, and says, it's really true, but how about Paul being accused of being greedy? Verse 5, he, he did not use his ministry as a pretext for greed. So you gloss over and say, how does ministry become a pretext for greed? Well, actually, you know, that kind of spiritual abuse is quite prevalent in our context, isn't it? You say, well, you know, here I am on the screen. You're telling people when they just, uh, you know, send, send your money in, you know, keep it coming. And you have instances of clergymen becoming exorbitantly wealthy uh, while not really being considerate of the true gospel message at all. So Paul is not did not come in greed. Or how about impurity? Verse 3 seems to be accused of impurity. Strong overtones there of sexual impropriety. Again, you say, well, minister, really? Say, well, yeah. yeah it's, a, it's an avenue where you can uh, do that kind of thing if, if that's your ambition. And Paul, again, refuting that. Say, you know how I acted among you. Say, I was not. I did not live that way uh, to, you know, satisfy my sexual desires. I was not deceiving. I was not greedy. I was not in it for myself. I wanted to please God. Now, why is this such a challenge? Say, this is our depravity factor, or one of them today. Say, why is this such a fight? That The truth is, I, I like to be liked. I think deep down, we all like to be liked. So, when I have the choice to please God or please people, I really have to fight not to impulsively please people. And I want to, you know, I want to be recognized. I want to be liked. I want to be popular. That that's part of our selfish nature. So here you have a tug of war. So am I about pleasing God or am I going to use things as an arena to really bring attention to myself? Furthermore, think about how every other industry works. That almost every other industry works by meeting a need. Um, last year, my son was in first grade. He had a little assignment at school. His assignment was to come up with an invention. And you say, of course, there's nothing we can invent and make at home that, that we could do in a couple weeks' time. So he came up with as an invention. But the point of the assignment was clear. You're to observe a problem and see how you can solve that problem either with greater quality or greater speed. Say, a lot of us are trained to think that way. There's nothing wrong with that. That's how the market works. That's how a lot of our professions work. You see the need, you deliver the need, the customer comes first, all these slogans. Ministry doesn't work that way. That we don't meet the demands of, of our, our, our fellow fallen people. Not that we, you know, try not to, uh, you know, be unlikable, as we'll come back to. That's not... not uh, in, in and of itself is, is going to be the main aim of what we do. But you see that if everything is determined by speed and quality and delivering what people want, except gospel ministry, that we've got a, a major 
a major battle to face here. Paul says, I'm not in the business of pleasing people. I'm not in the business of getting glory from people that really my ambition, my aim is to please God. Now, how is this happening now? See what you think. How's this happening in ministry these days? Think two primary ones. Firstly, is that we can feel ourselves deep down shying away or polishing off the corners of what we could call the hard truths of Scripture. So you go into a lecture call, hall, uh, you know, any of our leading inter- universities, and you say, well, today I'm going to talk about loving your enemy. So definitely a teaching of Jesus, and you say, give us great talk on loving your enemy. People say, that's a great lecture right there. You know what won't be so well received? Last week, 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10. God sent Jesus, whom he raised from the je- dead, Jesus who delivers you from the, the wrath to come. Is it that God's just judgment is something to be reckoned with? Does our loving God, and he is a loving God, is he actually going to deal with sin? Could it be that we do have a sin problem and that the main problem in the world is the crookedness of my own heart and I don't have a solution for the just judgment of God? So that kind of teaching is a lot harder. And so we're reading our Bible and say, oh, I just want to, you know, maybe not think about that as much. Say so the wrath of God or, or loads of other topics. And, and it, it, you know, it is sad, and I never want to, to pick on other... I say I, it's a hard thing, but I was talking to a fellow pastor in a mainline denomination. Mainline denominations splitting, as so many of them do, over same-sex ordination. And I said, well, what are you going to do? And he said, well, I'm going to see what my church wants me to do. And I said, well, what's the point of being a pastor? That your job as a pastor is to bring the people under the word of God, all of you, including yourself, and then you work out what it really means, and then you, you strive to build each other up in that truth. You get the idea, but we all face it. I don't mean to pick it. We all have this tendency to say, well, is that really what it's about? But here's what happens when we shy away from the hard truths. It's like if you have that little thread coming out of your sweater, and you say, well, I'm just gonna, you know, let's just pull this one out. Pretty soon, the whole thing's gone. So also have people, we acknowledge Jesus as Savior. It's almost part of his name. Jesus Christ, our Savior. And you say, well, what is he saving us from? Say, well, Jesus is saving us from the just judgment of God. That's kind of the whole redemption story that in my selfishness and my preference for myself that I've rebelled against my maker and I need to be saved and I can't do that of myself, but I need help from the outside. I need a, a Savior, Luther's hymn, right? the, the word from the outside who declares me righteous based on on God's faithfulness and his kindness. So if we shy away from the hard truths of the scripture that our faith is going to begin to make no sense, but we do have a temptation to do so because I'm more interested in getting glory from people than I am glorifying God sometimes. Secondly, second temptation, that we couch popular themes, that is popular ideas outside the church, in a kind of cheap biblical veneer. So we'll say, well, latch on to something. Say, the world's going this direction. They're really dropping this. And we say, well, there's enough kind of overlap. Let's bring that in and kind of sprinkle in a little bit of our faith. And that way, uh, we'll all be on the same page and we won't really have, um, you know, a price to buy. So example here, justice. There are lots of people, that justice, 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 justice. And the Christians say, we can get on board with that. We're going on the marches too. But what have we done? We've decoupled the author of justice, Jesus, from the virtue. And if you just talk about the virtue without Jesus, then we've resulted to nothing more than behavioralism, which is what the world's always had. 
that the power is in the word of Jesus. So we can try to save face and please people by latching on to words that the world finds acceptable and then bringing in, you know, sprinkling in a little of the Bible stuff. And I think this is where this topic that we can explore more, but in verse five, uh, flattery. We didn't come with flattery. I don't come telling everybody what they want to hear just to, you know, make it a little easier. So that's where Paul's coming from, that we, real ministry, aims to please God. We fight this at every level because our culture does not prioritize this kind of thing. Our culture prioritizes meeting needs with greater speed and greater quality, and there are ways we can feel in our gut as to how to alter this. Rather, take a look at that great word entrusted in verse 4. This is the real idea, that every Christian minister, every real Christian, has been entrusted to steward this great gospel, this great message of good news, that it's not as if the gospel was invented from the bottom up by people, but God said, this is how I'm going to redeem sinners, and for all of us who know this truth, as we talked last week, we've been so deeply changed by this, that God has dealt graciously with me, a sinner, that God has changed my life by giving me a new heart, that now I hold this as a kind of deposit that I'm stewarding, and I'm accountable to the great inventor, the one who's done that in my life, which is God himself. With each one of the aspects of ministry, I'll give a caution then. So mark number one, ministry, Paul would say, aims to please God. Here's the caution. This does not mean that we deliberately try to offend people. (laughs) Have you met Christians like that? That they go in and there's a blast this kind of you and blast this kind of you and talk about all the things that they're against. They bring down all this and then they say, well, you know, and people don't like them and they say, well, don't you know, you know, I'm really trying to please God and not please people. Say, no, we don't, we never behave that way. That Christians are to be kind and winsome and high-minded, never compromising truth, but we never go out of our way to defend. But what we do is we proclaim the good news. We've been entrusted with this wonderful message. That's what the gospel is. You can be saved. You can be right with God. You can live a life of purpose. Will you turn to Jesus today? We've been entrusted with that. So we don't deliberately offend. We're just faithful to what we've been given. Last thought about this, a story, a key mentor in my life, um, Jonathan Burnham, back in the 80s, met, met uh, Mother Teresa, and he told me the story many times of that they had a small audience with her, were sitting around just a few chairs, and one of the Americans would compliment her ministry, say, well, Mother Teresa, this is wonderful what you're doing for these poor kids in, in India, and every time they would you know, talk well of what she was doing, she only responded with three words, all for Jesus. They go, well, Mother Teresa, this is great. You're fantastic. You know, what a, what a great person. All for Jesus. And I'm trying. You've been very patient with me, but sometimes people will say very kindly, Pastor, thank you for that message today. I really enjoyed your message, and I almost always will say, thank you, but I'm working on it. I'm trying to say, all for Jesus. In fact, I would encourage every one of us to think that way, to get us in this mindset about ministry aiming to please God. Say, wow, you're doing a great job leading your small group. I really enjoyed it tonight. All for Jesus. Thank you for serving faithfully in the children's ministry. There's no children's volunteers. All for Jesus. Thank you for greeting. Indispensable ministry of the church. Man, your model, all for Jesus. Say that should be at the heart of, of who we are, that we're really aiming to please him and to fight then temptation of meeting others' needs, of pleasing people, say that enslaving trap, I can't be a man pleaser and a God pleaser, Galatians 1.10, I can't have everybody thinking I'm a great guy and thinking Jesus is great at the same time. And our mission 
is to make Jesus famous, really. So all for Jesus' ministry aims to please God. Secondly, Paul would tell us here, God through Paul, ministry requires hard work, courage, and perseverance. You remember what happened before he came to Thessalonica and Philippi. You can read about this in Acts 16, but Paul is beaten severely with the Roman rods. And I wonder, I wonder how he came into Thessalonica. You see his back, would it have been all scabbed up from the wounds he suffered just a short time before? Say these presumably much younger Roman guards pounding on him, you think he kind of limped in. You picture him there, how incredibly unimpressive, without much of anything in terms of humanly, you know, humanly speaking, anything impressive. He kind of limps in with this message about Jesus. So I, I can't, I mean, at one level, I don't, we, we don't do that kind of thing. I mean, if you go into a place and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're beaten or ridiculed or mocked, your, your impulse isn't to say, I'm going right back in the arena. Most people don't behave that way. And yet that's exactly what Paul did. He's just beaten. He says, I go to the next side. He goes right back. Hey, come, come to Jesus. God's acted in him. He acts graciously with sinners. Will you turn to him? Goes right back to it. Say, what guts? What courage? How about a model of ministering while wounded? You know, we can fall into the trap of saying, well, I can't encourage that person in the Lord because you know, my children just aren't right, and I, you know, just things aren't, aren't their best at home, and I, I can't do that now. Or I'm just really tired. I, I have not slept well. My mind's not in the right place, and, and now is not the day where I'm going to seize this opportunity to talk about the Lord Jesus. Or, you know, business is really busy. It's just a season, but in this season, I'm not going to... If we wait until everything is perfect and the children are great, and the grandchildren are great, and we're perfectly well-rested, and life at work is just fine, and we're waiting for the right equilibrium to say, only then can I speak about Jesus. We're going to miss the opportunities we have to build each other up and to minister. Rather, by God's strength, we would model this and many others to say there's a kind of mental fortitude that God can supply, that there's a kind of perseverance uh, uh, hanging in there and going right back to it, that is the mark of real ministry. Now, these oppositions to faithful ministry can come in external struggle. So, for example, verse 9, Paul said, we labored and toiled night and day so we wouldn't burden any of you. In other words, he took physical hardship upon himself in order to prevent the accusation of greed that's come his way anyway. But he says, don't you all know, didn't you see how hard I worked making tents so that you wouldn't have to make up for, you know, so you wouldn't have to contribute to my needs? That he worked extremely hard, that there is an external struggle, that there is a, a fatigue in his case. And thank goodness, not for us, but for him, beating. So at times, there are external constraints that can intimidate us, but we press on representing King Jesus. And when it's not external struggle, that it's internal struggle. Internal struggle, very formidable in gospel ministry. That the internal struggle, I think, you can't get somebody in matters of sexuality or money. Those are the big ones, right? Say, well, this person has went off the rails and one of those two. Then where does the, the real, where does it, it begins to fall apart with discouragement, a dampening of the spirits of the faithful. Don't share Jesus. 
That's a ridiculous thing to do. Don't build up the faithful. They don't need that. That's Shaw's, that's Shaw's job. They don't need me. Whatever. It was just a general description. I don't need, I don't need to participate in the church. I just be a spectator. Whatever it might be. A slow kind of discouragement and a self-pity. I remember reading Spurgeon, 19th century prince of preachers. And he says this little line. He says, I've experienced depressions of soul that I would never wish upon anyone. I said, the great Spurgeon? I mean, you know, speaking to all these people in London that his uh, sermons are in the times. Uh, how could he be depressed? I mean, God's using him so mightily, and yet he'd say, there are times where I'm just in such a dark place. But you keep going, honoring Jesus by the strength of God with courage, perseverance. Now, here's the caution on this one. The kind of gospel suffering that Paul is facing is a result of his faithfully living for Jesus, not as a result of patterns of sin. Now, in all that's happening, you're reading your headlines, do you ever see how certain Christian ministers can use their platform in ministry as an excuse to sin? Best example I have on this, again, not picking on him. I'm like to think I'm doing cultural analysis, analysis for brothers and sisters in the Lord, but a man who I greatly revered knew know a lot of his former team personally, but uh, Robbie Zacharias. That if you listen to the women after, you know, Robbie had been, he, he would say things like, don't you understand? Nobody's doing evangelism on my level. Say, well, yeah, there are evangelists, but nobody darts around the world like I do. I mean, nobody speaks to, I mean, so, so in other words, be, because of my platform and my gifting, that gives me an excuse to have this outlet. Well, you know, it's wrong. Yeah, but don't you see, that's not the kind of attitude we need to have of bringing hardship on ourselves. It, it, let's call it what it is. It's a, it's a sinful pattern justified by uh, what God's given you in ministry. So uh, that's the caution there. So the two moves we made, ministry aims to please God, not people. Ministry requires hard work, courage, perseverance, that the opposition comes from really doing gospel ministry, not from our own bad decisions. Thirdly, take a look at verse 7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us that you see some were saying, Paul was really good at coming in and giving the talk. He'd come in, preach about Jesus, and then he slipped out the back door. He didn't really want to get to know anybody. He really didn't want to deal with any of the thing you've got going on. And Paul says, no, it's the exact opposite. Real ministry, dare I say, is intimate. And we've got a great opportunity. This is so incredibly countercultural, but if you talk to young people, it, it's right there. So a lot of young people want real community. Is there a place where we can come where people are really thinking about ideas? There's a place to talk about the real longings of our heart, things like hope and love and security. Where's the arena to do that? It ought to be the local church. But that, what that requires of us is to really adopt the mentality of the New Testament, which is that we can get to know each other that we are sincerely interested in one another. Now, you look around our church, say, is it possible to know everyone intimate? Of course it's not. You can't know everyone at that level, but you can certainly know some. You can know some. 
And that's what he's saying here. We came among you. We not only gave the talk, we not only preached, as important as that is, but we gave of our very lives. We were interested in you, and we invested in you. This matter of influence and investment, you know, did, did you see the study on how many young people want to be online influencers? We had a I don't understand this area because I'm not on social media and I don't read really anything after about 1900. Uh, so, um, I was saying, reading the, the book review, I read book reviews, um, so things like that. So what, what is this? I don't understand. Like how are 40 million young people wanting to influence each other? Like how does that even work? And they said, well, the, the dinner guests said, oh, there are sub-disciplines of influencing, you know, Mallory's on the how to bake sourdough influencing thing. Uh, so sour, there's a sourdough group. Um, so, but, but if you think about that, influencing people, I just ask you this. Think in your own life, who has had the most positive effect on shaping you? You'd say, this is the, the greatest positive influence in my life. You could say, well, Shakespeare. Very people usually don't say things like that. I read a good leadership book, really helped me, you know. Or is it Actually, it's somebody who knew me quite well. It's somebody who invested in me. It was a personal relationship. That's how I was greatly influenced. That's when I really felt that, that my life, that those relationships had real meaning. So the, the point, there's what Paul's saying is something that's obvious to our generation. We should be seeing it, that we want to invest in each other's lives because that's how we can build each other up in the Lord, that there's a degree of nurturing and knowing and gentleness, and yes, that's, that does mean that ministry can't be done through screens. I, I, pa pastors on screens, to me, are, are, again, some of them are my friends and your friends, and I'm not picking on them, but I would just ask them in good professional kind of discourse, isn't that exactly what Paul's saying that he didn't do here? You know, I didn't just come and give the talk and then leave and say, hey, it's great, I'll proclaim to you. And I know some of you are watching now for various reasons, and I understand that, but it's not just, hey, I want to talk to you and not know you, that there should be an element here. When we do ministry, we share Jesus and we share our lives, that there's an intimacy, and that is a comparative advantage. Now, caution here on this one. Behaving as nurturers... You really press that. You think, I care about other people as much as a mom cares for a young infant. Wow. Say, so you see a mom with a young infant? Now, that's real care. Nurturing others doesn't compromise truth. You have to say, spill off too far in this direction. Say, well, you know, we're, we're very gentle people around here, and, and that way we, we just let anybody believe whatever they want to believe. Say, no, that, that would spill off too far that way. But ministry does demand a kind of motherly gentleness a valuing of fellow believers, of new Christians, of people you're sharing the gospel with, uh, to, to value them as highly as a mother would her small child. Pretty high bar. Ministry demands a motherly gentleness. Lastly, ministry includes a fatherly encouragement, a fatherly charge. You see how Paul moves verse 7, like a nursing mother, to verse 11, for you know how like a father with his children. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God and calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, mom and dad do different things. That's a different sermon for a different day. But you see, there's something, not to say there's no overlap, but there's the motherly nurturing and the fatherly exhorting that must be among each one of us, but how Paul would lay out these metaphors, very interesting. So ministry demands a kind of fatherly encouragement. What's happening? You see that word charged? What that means 
is that we have to, we're invited to, put strength into one another. So that's exactly what a dad does. I said, I have a great dad. He was here last hour. I said, that's what my dad did for me. He put strength into me. He spoke into my life. You talk to guys with good dads, what do good dads do? They speak into the lives of their children. You did a good job there. I see you doing more of this. Well done. How about thinking about it this way? Oh, that's not for you. Don't do that. And they put a charge into them. And Paul's saying, real ministry, all of us here, we're exhorting each other, building each other up, charging each other, follow Jesus more. He's the king. How we, how we doing? Be involved in this. Oh, you did a really good job with that. That's how we build each other up into maturity in Christ. Every member of the church family, exhorting and encouraging and building up, using words, thoughtfully charging each other. Now, the overdone strength here, if you will, the caution here is that we know to use the word from Ephesians 6 that sometimes dads in their challenging can exasperate people. So if we don't want to go so far that we say, oh, that's just a bit too much, you know, as the English would say. We don't want to do that, but rather to say there's a fatherly encouragement and a general building up of the faithful. Now, friends, think about this. Think about these marks. Think about how you view your own ministry, which if you're a Christian, you have this ministry. Say, am I bearing these marks? Am I, when I meet non-believers, is my impulse to say, you know, I'm trying to show them that I'm an important guy, or is it, how do I honor God here? How do I please God? Secondly, you've been discouraged uh, by the church. You'd be in that category that's been really let down by the church, or you shared with a colleague, it went terribly wrong. Say, what about that second point? Say, this is about hard work and courage and perseverance, that we gotta hang in there, that there's always gonna be struggles. May those struggles be really imposed by what it means to be a Christian in these times and not our own recklessness. Secondly, how about a motherly gentleness? Say, maybe you're somebody who's really strong on the truth. So you know the right answers. You really let them have it. That view's way out of bounds. You say, you, you know, you compromise the faith. You're a heretic. You say, maybe strong there, but there's no gentleness, no tenderness, not valuing others like a mom would her children, like a nursing mother. We want to know you. We want to think together, be together. And then lastly, how am I doing on the fatherly encouragement front? Am I a great critic, bringing them down, finding all the flaws? Or can we put a charge into each other? Keep going. Follow Jesus. You won't regret it. He's the king. Keep going. Serve others. That kind of thing. So that's a view of God's work done God's way. May our church never be about man's work done man's way, but God's work entrusted with the gospel done God's way to his glory. May we be real ministers. I'll pray as Ian and the team come back up. Lord, we admit that we have not always been about your work your way, that how easy it is to have an eye on ourselves, the nooks and crannies of the heart, as Calvin talked about, there's always a bit of self, a fallen self in there. How easy it is to be people pleasers, to want to be liked, to shy away from the tough things, to put culturally acceptable words in a kind of biblical veneer or not really, you know, playing patty cake with them, whatever it would be. Or Lord, how easy it is to throw in the towel, say that's enough of this, this is too hard, no thanks. Or Lord, we're too high on truth and sacrifice gentleness or are so gentle that we're afraid to really exhort and build up with any confidence. Say this balance cannot be manufactured um, on our side that we can't just get the balance right but rather we need your help
to be a church like this that does your work in your way, that we've got to be accountable to one another, invested in each other. Help us to see the great advantage we have when we do, when we do your work in your way. Great things will happen, we pray, for the Lord Jesus. So may that be our posture, all for Jesus.